Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Angela Himsel. Her new book, A River Could Be a Tree, tells her true life story. She is the seventh of 11 children from a family that belonged to an evangelical branch of Christianity that espoused a doomsday philosophy, the Worldwide Church of God. Angela's attempts to follow the church's strict teachings and attain the Holy Spirit took her halfway around the world. But instead of strengthening her faith, her perspective was broadened and she began to question everything she'd been taught, both exciting and agonizing. Those three words that Angela thought to herself, maybe I'm wrong, set her on a completely different path. Ultimately, the connection to God she so relentlessly pursued was found in the most unexpected place, a mikvah on Manhattan's Upper West Side. This Christian woman found her own form of salvation as a practicing Jew. A river could be a tree, traces a seemingly impossible journey of faith, family, and friendship. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Angela himself. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Your new memoir, A River Could Be a Tree. This is such an interesting read, which really kind of narrates your your own journey through life and faith. But it, it's so interesting, too, because you begin by talking about your own family roots and also religious roots back to like the Reformation and Catholic. Correct. And Catholic, right. Right. And, and Catholic Protestant kind of disputes back in, in that period. I mean, why, why, why did you feel like you needed to go that far back to tell your story? I think that there is so much that in the current world that we live in that is actually historical in nature. And unless you know your history, you kind of don't understand what's happening in both your personal life as well as in the bigger political world. So in my case, my mother was Catholic and my father was Lutheran. And in the 1950s, this was still considered a mixed marriage, hard to believe. And um, and because of that, to a large extent, because they had never really resolved that Catholic-Protestant divide, they started looking at other religions and other faiths that they could both adopt and adapt to. And that's when they found the Worldwide Church of God. But I do think that my history would have been very different if both of them had been Catholic or if both of them had been Lutheran. Yeah, you tell this interesting story. I think it was on... on on the Lutheran, which is the paternal side, right? That Correct. your grandfather was killed by a Catholic drunk driver, and right. and the priest actually lied for him, right? And apparently, sa- and said that that he was in church and that he couldn't have killed him because he he was in church at the time. And I mean, this yet yet another one of these strange sort of exercises of religious authority that that happens in your own story, right? I mean, it's like, right. you can see it's not just the Protestant Catholic stuff. There, there's actually interpersonal stuff that seemed to kind of uh, put salt yeah. into the wound. Exactly. That's exactly correct. And when I was doing my research for the book, I mean, first of all, I love research. I don't know any writer who doesn't love research. We could research all day and never write a word. Uh, but when I was researching the Catholic and Lutheran stuff, even though I already knew about it, I guess I didn't really realize how incredibly deep that rift was, and it remained for many, many centuries. 
Yeah, yeah. And then for them, I mean, they're, it's interesting because you talk about in the book how your mom, I think, found the Worldwide Church of God through like listening to radio stuff, right? She right, was, yeah. And, yeah. The radio was big back then in the 1950s. I mean, it, it had just sort of started to boom. And there were a lot of radio evangelists at the time. Yeah. And that really, I mean, she was taken by this and eventually you wind up in, you guys wind up in the Worldwide Church of God right. and your life becomes a sort of a really different kind of sectarian experience. Is that fair to, I mean, is it fair to use the term sectarian? I mean, you're pretty, you're pretty distinct yeah. from the wider world. It really was. It, we were, I mean, some people would call it a cult and it's a harsh word. I, it was certainly fundamentalist and it was certainly isolating. We were very different from anybody else in the county. We were the only ones in the county who were in this particular church and the only ones in our uh, immediate families. And I mean, that it's interesting because that can kind of be a, I, I once heard a Baptist friend who grew up Fun, really fundamentalist mm -hmm. uh, separatist Baptist community, and they told me one time about the sec the separation second degree separation doctrine. That not mm. only did they think Billy Graham was a heretic, but if right. you if you saw somebody at a coffee shop reading Billy Graham, you had to separate yourself from them too. Mm. It's because because it, the spiritual right. cooties could kind of linger. I mean, right. I, I, that I I I would guess as a child that's confusing, right? When your extended family's not in it, when your people in your neighborhood aren't in it, this is. This is seems so, and it's not like you're Amish or Hasidic, and you're wearing distinctive right. dress all the time. So it's it's a strange kind of sectarian right. thing. I would I, I'm sure that's tough to interpret as a kid. It really was because on one hand we would go to my grandparents every Sunday, and we would see them. We would go to the farm and we would do chores and and that sort of thing. On one hand it was great we saw our family. On the other hand we were told that they were unconverted, they didn't have God's spirit, and therefore we were supposed to, if not shun them, we were supposed to keep a distance from them because they might lead us astray from the church. So it was really hard to know, how close am I supposed to be to my family? Because God hadn't called them, and it wasn't their fault, but on the other hand, they kind of did have spiritual cooties. Yeah, that's interesting too, right? If 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 you're pretty convinced that not only that you had to be a Christian to be saved, but a very specific right. small crowd. This is like in its heyday, like a hundred thousand people or something, right? Like at, I mean, at the most. I right, mean, that's right. Uh, that's even if everyone got saved, that's less than Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> hundred at least they've got one hundred forty-four thousand right. at, at the top tier. But like not so. Yeah, that that kind of narrow gate kind of approach is not paired with the desire to tell everybody. For fear that you'd get infected, so it's like so it's like we it's like only Jesus is the way, but you right. don't want to be too zealous in telling people because you could catch the cooties the other way. Right. I mean, they could lead you away, or they could end up taking your place because we, you know, we, we there wasn't that much space in terms of getting saved in the in the Bible. It says I think there will be one hundred and forty four thousand. So that was the number we were always looking for. But you know, honestly, we just wanted to make sure we were in that number. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you you, you don't want to be a why you don't you wonder why can't there just be a big coach section? You know, you get your first class business class, then a big coach section for right. the stragglers. You know, exactly. but exactly, exactly. It, it, it's interesting because you talk about your sister Abby who got sick, right? And right. is that about the time where you're where they're a little more permissive on television shows because she's she 
I, you tell you tell a story about getting to watch like the Waltons. Right. I I dream of Jeannie even yeah. once in a while. I right. Mean, w- w- right. Which is well. My parents were inconsistent. I will say this about my parents. The church was inconsistent. My parents were inconsistent. I have certainly taken inconsistency to a whole new level. But um, I think when you grow up with inconsistency, it's hard. It's difficult because one day this is okay and the next day it's forbidden. So one day we could have doctors and the next day we couldn't. And one day we couldn't watch I Dream of Jeannie or Casper the Friendly Ghost because they had, you know, supernatural elements, which was, you know, demonic and of the devil. But then the next day, my parents relaxed that rule because my sister was sick. And so she wanted to watch it. So they relaxed it for her sake. But I was still a little concerned that we were doing something wrong. Yeah, because that, that's interesting, right? Because, child, you know, children are, are very are not abstract thinkers, right? They're very concrete thinkers. So it's, right. it's, it's all these mixed messages are, I mean, that's, that right. creates a lot of dissonance. It's a lot psychologically in a kid, right? Right. It really was. I never quite knew, am I doing something wrong? Am I doing something right? Tomorrow they might change the rules. And when they change the rules, what am I going to do? So yeah, it was definitely um, a little confusing to grow up that way. It's really interesting too. You had like a, a a double pneumonia experience as a kid, right? I did. And, yeah. I and and you you got prayed over. I did. I got an uh, I got the um, prayer cloth, which they would send from headquarters, and it was a little white flannel cloth. And um, yeah, it came straight from headquarters. Was there a bath well, phone? How yeah, do you was, get to headquarters? I mean, I know headquarters. They always called it headquarters, and headquarters was in Pasadena. And I actually learned later that a lot of the church's structure was sort of loosely designed on the kind of uh, Nazi structure. So headquarters was also um, a word that they used in Germany. You know, headquarters. Do they call it? I mean, Armstrong could have been the Uber Gruppenführer or something, right? Like, I mean, this, <laughs> like, like it's, it's a fascinating. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you even tell a story early on growing up that you that you like you had some like Nazi sympathizers in your family, right? Like, there's a drunken relative or something yeah, that that, right. that this yeah. kind of ethnic German. Right, uh, my right, my family originally came from Germany, and they certainly never left behind their prejudices. Let's just say that, and um, very suspicious of anybody who wasn't white and Christian. And my great uncle Lawrence, I was talking to my mother and she said, um, I asked her whether or not there had been any anti-Semitism, if she had noticed any. And she said, no, I don't think so. She goes, well, I remember Uncle Lawrence going out and sort of shouting up at the sky while he was drunk, hi-ho Hitler. And I said, maybe he was saying Heil Hitler, Mama. And she said, maybe he was. But she was young and she didn't realize what he was saying. It's interesting that the church would take the Nazi structures, but not the dress. I mean, if you get, a lot of fascists are very fashionable. So, and then you would know, <laughs> they, you'd know who you are, right? You could wear right. the poofy boots and the classic thing. You would be, be very you know, easy. So, but yeah, and doesn't your father or something, he got a Christmas tree out of the house because you had the yeah. double note. And he thought, well, you know what? It's because we got the Christmas tree out and we got the prayer. Yeah. And that's why you lived. Right. Well, the, the church didn't believe in Christmas or in Easter. We believed those were pagan holidays. And so we didn't celebrate Christmas. We didn't celebrate Easter just to make us even more weird within our family and within the county. And somebody had brought a Christmas tree over and um, I was sick. And I remember, though, Daddy hauling it off and saying, you know, we have a sick girl in this house as if, again, the, the Christmas tree was, was contaminated and was going to bring the uh, bubonic plague into the house. 
it's interesting too. You note that, like, because you guys were what I guess they would call Sabbatarians, right? So, so, so the Sabbath was Saturday, which was the Correct. Lord's Day, right? And so, Correct. and you say that that the Sabbath was for God, and then Sunday was kind of the family day, right? And but but worship was on Sundays. I mean, like, no, 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 worship was on Saturday. Saturdays, we, okay, okay. It was from Friday night to Saturday night, just like the just like the Adventist or right. yeah, okay, right? Correct. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting because you talk about this prayer that is is happening every Friday evening, mm-hmm. and you added your own private prayer. Now I'm taking that this is internally that you're not speaking this. No, I guess <laughs> internally correct. Yeah. Uh, you said <gasps> I added my own private prayer that my parents would get along, that my extended family would join our church, so we could all be saved, that I could get into the kingdom, and that I would receive God's Holy Spirit. Right. How old are you when you're praying that? You know, I don't know. I was probably like nine or 10, you know, 11, but not, I think that it was much more of a childhood kind of a thing. I was, I was probably praying for other things when I was a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting though. As a child that age, the perception of conflict that, that you see this conflict in your family, in your immediate family, that's tension that that obviously is stressing you out. And And then you have this sense of, you know, estrangement conflict, like that 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 the church causes with your extended family, like the, right. although we're 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 not estranged because we see them regularly, or some, but then mm-hmm. it, there's this deep secret, and even yourself, right? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. I mean, you're kind of you know you're waiting, you're waiting. Right. It's just like um, the X Men or something. You're waiting for your superpower right. to, to develop. Exactly. And, and that's very just, re- that's a lot for a kid. I know it was a lot. It was a lot of uh, things to 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 wish would change because they were all big things. The fact that my parents didn't get along and the fact that, you know, that the, that nobody else in our family would be saved. That obviously really bothered me. And it bothered me that I didn't have the Holy spirit when other people who I did not feel were quite as worthy as I was did apparently have the Holy spirit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting that you, that you're, you, you, that you develop uh, that honed sense of judgmentalism. They give you- <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, come on. I mean, this person's held on to it. Don't worry. <laughs> That's amazing. You. It's interesting. Is your when your your sibling Abby dies? Was she? Oh, I forget. Was right. she older or younger? She's than, older. She's, she's older a year than, older than me. She she dies, and you it, it, rather than you know there were there were your parents made several decisions to forgo certain medical treatments and, right. and she dies. So you say something that my parents preferred to believe that it was their lack of Sabbath observance that right. caused their daughter's death instead of not providing adequate medical care uh, because of their religious beliefs and, and how they doubled down on this. And I had, it's funny because I wrote a note in the margins about the first page of the book because you, mm-hmm. you, you say that in the first page of the book, Denial was one of your primary <laughs> self characteristics. Exactly, and that that stuck with me through the whole book. And as I was reading right. that, that story, I was like, "Wow, it's, uh, did you learn that from your parents?" Because they all the all this sort of inconsistencies, right. a, and then instead of taking a look at them, they they just go into you know everyone's favorite river, river denial, right? Like, I mean, right. they're they're, <laughs> they're 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 so. I mean, do you feel like that sort of denial is something that sort of it, 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 the religious, all this religious tension culture sort of stuff was passed on to you? It definitely was. And I struggle with it today, I have to say, because there can be, it can be very obvious that things are a certain way, let's just say. But I, I somehow managed to overlook them and turn a blind eye and turn the other way. 
Um, and it's um, not something that's necessarily a good thing. It's, it's, it's the lack of confrontation. You didn't dare confront the church because the last thing you wanted was to be uh, kicked out and thus not make it into the kingdom. It's interesting because I, I, when you say that, I'm thinking about the Reformation history you do, the mini mm-hmm. Reformation in the beginning. And this is one of the key concerns that reformer the reformers have about Rome that you have too much institutional power. That, that you, in fact, predestination, it, it, as weird as it sounds in the 21st century, it, it, it's it's strangely comforting to say, well, God chooses you, so Rome can't kick right. you out because God uh-huh. has, right. So so it's interesting. You have this church that that has these books and saying Catholicism is you know the whore of Babylon and awful, and awful. right? And yet institutionally. They wield power in the heavy-handed way that someone like absolutely. Luther was afraid of, of, of the high medieval church doing. Right. No, they absolutely did. Again, it was just that usual kind of inconsistency in which they said, prove everything. God is the head of the church. That's what they said. They said that God was the head of the church, or Jesus was the head of the church, rather. But the real truth is Herbert Armstrong was the head of the church. But they like to pretend that they were only following God's orders and Jesus' orders, that it wasn't coming from them. It was coming, again, like the Catholic Church, it was coming from God. It's, you had this great story in the book about Herbert Armstrong. I guess when he he sets, he writes this letter, his wife had moved to Arizona or something, and right. he, he let her separate, but you know, this mm-hmm. this is not to be condoning divorce, and God hates divorce. Right. And, yet, and then you say, and then he reinstituted a makeup ban because right. we, it was rumored that his wife loved makeup. So that's right. what's amazing. She stays in the church. Right. <laughs> I know. I don't understand That's amazing. It. I know. I don't understand it at all. Yeah, he, he thought that if he banned makeup, that that would turn her away, drive her away. And then he could justify divorcing her because guess what? She wouldn't adhere to the rules. But she did adhere to the rules, and boy, did she show him. Hmm. I feel like if you are the founder and head of a religious movement like this, and you have low self-esteem at the high point of it, there's no fixing you, right? Because if everyone's hanging on right. your every word, if you can't, there's no therapy that's going to fix your no. your ego needs if you can't if you don't Absolutely. feel secure yeah. after this. <laughs> Right, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's a lot of power and a lot of affirmation for anybody yeah. to have. So, you, you go to college, you go to uh, Indiana, Indiana, Indiana University. <laughs> this is amazing to me because you you're in this huge world, and you 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 tell these stories about your drinking beer late in the, in the morning, and you're mm-hmm. sowing a little bit of your oats, and yet you still go to church you're still these things are still despite all the inconsistencies you are still observant to some degree or another right i mean this is it right. you have to you some know, degree there's right. some rebellion some but it's not you never right. you never throw the whole thing away at this point no still clinging on desperately i mean i think that you know what i tried to make clear and i think it did come across was that um the only way you could get into the kingdom was in the next world um, was to stay in the church. And so my access to the next world and thus to see my sister and to see any dead family was to stay in the church. So for me, um, seeing my sister equaled staying in the church. So, I mean, she really kept you in the game. I mean, her hope of seeing her, I mean, she's taken away from you. Sure. That was definitely a big part of it. Uh, Definitely a big part that, um, I wanted to be there at the resurrection when Jesus returned. And then 
if I were there, then I would see her. And if I wasn't, if I had somehow fallen away, then I wouldn't see her, nor would I see my family who had, if they had remained in the church. So whoever was in the church, you know, they were going to be in the kingdom. And, and if you weren't, then you wouldn't be seeing your family. I mean, that's a great, it's it's a great recruiting Kind of, kind of thing, or, it, or, or what do they well, call it? It, it? it creates a low recidivism rate, I would guess. Like, or, <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, I mean, or, 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 or high recidivism. I mean, I don't know however you, however you use the right. term. Because uh, it's interesting, you know, the 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 Rumpenspringer, the Amish, when you get to sow your oats that period. Right. That it's something like ninety some percent, ninety two percent or something. After that year, choose to go back to the community and sort of become full members. I mean, that's that's amazing, right? I mean, it, it, after they've tasted. Uh, the modern world. And it's kind of like, okay, that's enough. Right. Well, listen, I think that they actually, if they were to leave, they actually do face being shunned and not being able to go back into their families again. That's, um, I didn't face that in, in, in my case, that if you left the church, you left the church. And, you know, my family was still there for me and, and that sort of thing. But certainly within the Amish community, I think if you leave, you're, you really... Uh, you leave. Yeah, but there there is that sort of fear, though. Like, well, not not in this life, I won't be separated. Mm. But you know, but I'll be separated on the other end. I mean, that if you leave, right. I mean, and, and certainly you wouldn't want to be like one of the sorted extended family members that you know, right? That 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 we like, mm. but they're just clearly not. Right. You know, yep. they're out. Right. Right. Well, it it that's how it does keep a hold on you, though. Honestly, so sometimes people stay for the religion. But sometimes they don't. They stay for the whole package. They stay for the community. They stay for the extended family. They stay for tradition. And they stay for um, just that it's been embedded in them for, for in such a, a profound and deep way. So they stay because it really has become their identity. But you, I mean, you seem to have had mm-hmm. the religious gene or the religious spirit in you at a young age. I mean, I'm sure you knew people in your church that just did stay for the sociology that really they, they weren't, but you're, you're somebody that's sort of, you're a little bit of a tortured soul. I mean, you had, you had this deep <laughs> spiritual yeah. energy that, that, that comes yeah. out throughout your life. I mean, you never can quite put down these deep spiritual questions. Whereas I'm sure you knew people in the church that, okay, yeah, sure. You know, Jesus heaven, I hope I get the Holy spirit, but then they kept kids that probably kind of lived I their know. lives a little more, a little less existentially tortured than you did. I know. I was so shocked to find out that other people were not that concerned about all of these doctrines, whereas I was really grappling with them and I was thinking about them and I was trying to figure them out. And, you know, I still do, but I do like, uh, I guess I like religion in general. I like, I do have faith in my own way. And, um, yeah, I feel like religion um, answers a lot of those or attempts to answer a lot of those questions. I, I don't know that it actually does, but it certainly attempts to answer a, a lot of those big conundrums that we all face. You know, who are we? Where are we going? Where'd we come from? All that big stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think that, that w- what's challenging in late modern life in a place like urban blue state America or a place, you know, like Western Europe and many places mm-hmm. that, is that without like moorings in, cer- in certain kind of traditions, you're, it's a lot of pressure to sort of grapple with those questions on your own, right? Because everybody has those right. kinds of questions, but you, you know, you, if you don't get some kind of formal tradition that, that at least gives you some kind of introduction or access, if you're so inclined to a repository of 
that that here's some some of our best shots at these questions, right? Right. Then you're kind of yeah. thrown on your own with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always good to take advantage of people who have come before us and who are also with us currently who are working on this and thinking about this and reading and thinking about um, other philosophers and other theologians and other traditions and seeing what works, I guess, what resonates with you. You, at your junior year of college, you have this opportunity uh-huh. to go to Israel. You, you can, right. And you are pretty excited. This seems, it's just fascinating. You'll get to sort of, you know, see the, 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 the setting of all the, these stories that animated your childhood right. memory, imagination and things like this. But you, you have this great, you, you say in the book that when you tell your parents you want to do this, uh, they were kind of perplexed and you were perplexed that they were perplexed. Like, you know, the, hey, I mean, why wouldn't I want to do this? You, you raised me where religion was our right. whole lives. And they're like, why would you want to go to the Holy Land? And you're like, right. well, what do you mean? Why would I want to go? Right. <laughs> I mean, they, that, that's fascinating that they wouldn't get that. I guess they did ultimately, but I think that they viewed Israel as more modern day Israel, which I didn't. And so I, I think there was just a disconnect between us. I wasn't really paying attention to modern day Israel. And I think they felt probably that these things happened a long time ago and the prophets weren't there anymore. Jesus wasn't there anymore. So, you know, the land itself, maybe it had some sense of holiness, but without the, those prophets there, it, it was just another country. Yeah. Like if your favorite restaurant relocated to a new location, why would you want to go to the old location? Right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. for the, you know, what's the matter? Right. You can still get the real food you want over here. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So you do go to Israel and this is a, a, Mm -hmm. a mind blowing experience for you. I mean, just the, I mean, you are, you're struck by 
first the diversity, right? I mean, you just were not ready for this no. metropolitan, not just religious diversity, ethnic diversity, uh, viral di- diversity on religious observance. I mean, this was a real panorama, no. panorama, panorama of experience that you like you weren't at all anticipating. That's right. I mean, honestly, I I barely knew any Jews and. I didn't really know who was living in Israel. I sort of knew about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I didn't really know what started it. I didn't know who did what to whom and when. And I guess I really didn't understand fully how much the Holocaust had impacted the creation of the state of Israel. I just didn't put the dots together. I was very busy in southern Indiana you know, worrying about getting the Holy Spirit and and being raptured. So I wasn't really thinking about other people and what they were doing and how their lives were working out for them. Do you know that there is a company that you can contract that they'll basically, you contract with them to take care of your pets if you're raptured? And they and they guarantee that all of their employees are either like atheistic, none of their their, uh, employees are Christian. So you're guaranteed- That your pets oh, will be safe. That's really funny. I I don't doubt it. I, I always funny. think, why aren't I that smart? That's you know, very funny. You know, that is so savvy. That's like P.T. Barnum savvy. Oh, you know, like, uh, the, uh, oh. yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, that's it's pretty remarkable. You know, you tell this, you write it, that in that you lost your ability in Israel to read the Bible with an uncritical eye. And right. it's very inter- it's very interesting because you're shocked that I think you're on an archaeology trip with somebody mm-hmm. or some in this one, and you're sort of like, well, look, if we can't verify the stuff, I mean, it, you know, you're, you're kind of a what 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 I guess in popular parlance, parlance among evangelicals, so you have an inerrantist view of the Bible, like it, everything happened. Yeah. If, if you had an exactly iPhone, if, if you had an iPhone, you could record it, like right. Uh, yes. And this one woman says, well, these things don't. My face existential. I mean, the, these historical things aren't that that wouldn't validate or invalidate my faith. And you're kind right. of astounded that she as a Christian could say that, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we were certainly literalists. I mean, my uh, my church was was very literal. And a lot of fundamentalist Christians are and the, you know, Noah's Ark, it actually literally happened as far as we were concerned. And if there was an inconsistency in the account in the Bible, and there is an inconsistency in in two different uh, sections, you know, how many um, animals went on the Ark? Um, Was it two or was it uh, seven? I think there's an inconsistency. So I'd never seen the inconsistency before, never been pointed out to me before. But once you see inconsistencies, then what do you do about it? How do you how do you reconcile that? Because if this could be wrong or inconsistent, then what else could be wrong? And so I think that for this particular woman I was referring to, she just avoided that completely by saying, I have faith and I don't care what um, I don't care what I find out. I don't care if it's true, not true, uh, kind of true. She just had faith. And I didn't have that kind of faith. That, yeah, that, that's in, in, in a section of the book. I mean, you, you write so beautifully. And I mean, this is, one of my, this is one of my favorite passages. You say, lost my certainty, found ambiguity and ambivalence. Lost, though I may have been, I was happy losing myself in Israel. Yet, I also knew that in a way I couldn't yet articulate, my lostness was only beginning to surface, which meant that my foundness was still in the future. I mean, that is so beautifully written. Thanks. 
and I mean, all I mean, all memoir is is retrospect, right? So it's hard to separate right. how you're feeling from how you feel about how you were feeling. But could right. you at that time had used a term like lostness for with what it would have had the freight? Like, could you call it that in your internal dialogue? Because if you're lost, I mean, the lost, that's like the people that we said are going to contaminate <laughs> us, right? So if you're saying you're lost, I mean, the freight of that war- metaphor seems, yeah. for where you're coming from, it seems really almost dangerous for who you are. Yeah, it was. And I don't know whether or not I verbalized it to myself at that time or at a little bit of a later time. But I would say that I was aware of feeling lost, whether I termed it lost or not, but certainly feeling out of sorts, let's just say very out of sorts that I didn't have that certainty. And when you don't have that certainty, that's tethering you to your past, to your church, to whatever, um, then once that certainty is gone, you, you really are untethered. You really, it could go any, any way it could go. You could end up going back. You could end up going this way or that way. So I definitely did have that sense of kind of free falling, I would say. When I read that passage, I I almost thought of like Dante, you know, Dante. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I, I, it's just, it's the, it's the midlife crisis, although you're not at midlife at this point, but it's just like, Hey, I was lost in the woods. I was walking. I was lost in the woods. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like Israel was your Beatrice or, 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 or maybe yeah. your Virgil or something, you know, I mean like something, I mean, Israel is some kind of a guide, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Beatrice is his, his, his sort of emotional guide that keeps him going, but Virgil is this obviously the kind of tour guide, but Israel is, is a guide for you. I mean, it's some kind of midwife or something for you in this process. I think you're right. I mean, I think that first of all, when people go on their one-year programs, whether they go to Paris or whether they go to Sweden or they go to England, it often has a very profound effect on them. So simply being 19 and doing a one-year abroad anywhere is will often really change you because you, you see the bigger world. But in this case, I was going to the Middle East and I was very much a minority uh, in the Middle East. And so not only was I doing the one year abroad, but I was in a very different part of the world. It wasn't Europe. And I also had no clue about the people I was encountering. So, um, yeah, it, Israel ended up being maybe maybe because of all of those reasons and a lot of other reasons, it ended up being much more compelling, I think, than if I had spent a year in Germany, which is what I was thinking of doing. Yeah, it's so interesting, too, because you, I mean, the vessel through which your religious personality was was, was contained was this Church of God sort of right. separatist. And yet you maintain a posture of curiosity, mm-hmm. which is not easy, I would think, and I'm sure was not characteristic of many in and most sort of fundamentalist movements, you know, I mean, that that's an interesting tension that you maintain that, that you do. I mean, you tell lots of stories about meeting people and you're you're as curious as as any right. as any sort of American kid would be. I mean, you're not you, you, the, the right. sort of the, 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 the fear of contamination stuff. You know, that seems to be held at bay to some degree by your curiosity. Yeah, I can, I can never get over my curiosity. I have to say that's still um, I guess it's just um, an intrinsic part of somebody, whether or not, you know, there's always kids who always ask questions, you know, like, what's this and how is that? And it irritates you. But on the other hand, it really it says something about them. They're curious and they cannot help themselves from being curious. And so I was always curious about other people, uh, places and, and that sort of thing. 
And but curiosity can be a bit dangerous within the church because there's, you know, a famous quote in the uh, Bible, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And rebellion is in a way curiosity, um, because once you're, once you're curious and you want to find out other stuff, well, it might lead to rebelling. Hey, you tell you, there's another great passage in the book that I love where you are looking at the Bible through kind of Jewish eyes. And you say the Bible was a portable temple, a spiritual home in exile that could reside in the hearts of anyone, anywhere, anytime. The text replaced the temple as the to the divine. Prayer replaced blood sacrifice. In Hebrew, the word for sacrifice, korban, means to come close. The purpose of any sacrifice, any prayer, was simply to bring you closer to God. In Christianity, Jesus was the blood sacrifice. Without belief in Jesus, could you come close on your own? And right. it, it seems when you're right, I mean, is that the existential question? Maybe that's, maybe you're repressing a little bit, but you're thinking mm-hmm. about this. Well, these people, this is, there's a lot of different ways that seems to, right. to, to, to experience real religious depth. And, 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 and it's really different than, than the way I've put it together. Yeah. I mean, I think that growing up in the church and probably in a lot of religious traditions, you think that there's one path to God. That's it. You got to get on that path. You got to find the one correct, right path to God. And Jesus is the gatekeeper. And you got to get past Jesus. So I, it was, you know, again, you know, when you're young and you're 19 and you're sort of looking around and you're like, oh, wow, these people think they have a path to God too. How could that possibly be? Because you sort of think that the two are mutually exclusive. If I'm on the right path, then you're on the wrong path and we can't both be right. So I'm happy to not feel that way anymore. I'm happy for everybody to be on their own path and enjoy, you know? You tell the story where, like, you met this kid who was, he's like, his name is Bruce and he's a Christian. And, right. And you're like, how'd you become a Christian? You, you're from Jewish, uh, Jewish home. Why'd you do that? He's, well, and he was gay. <laughs> and, and he said, I know. <laughs> he said he had this dream about, like, Jesus and, 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 and uh, Jesus loved him and everything. He became a Christian because his Judaism wasn't very heartfelt or moving to him. And, and you're just like, gosh, here's this gay kid and he gets this dream. And when do I get the freaking Holy Spirit? Right. Exactly. I mean, you're, so, you're, you're so like, when, you know, I, I'm just like, what am I? The ugly stepdaughter here? Right. Why, why exactly. me? I know. I really did feel that way. I felt like, you know, some of my friends were being baptized in the church and other people had this great conviction about Jesus. And I wanted that conviction. It wasn't like I wasn't striving for it. I was striving for it but I wasn't getting it. So I just couldn't understand how I could work so hard for something and not get it. Yeah. It's interesting too. Like you think of the the reformation and this whole Luther kind of Mm -hmm. uh, that, Hey, it's the striving thing that will undo you, right? That this is a gift that can Uh only be received. And it's whether you have people that again, seeming to be repeating some of the excesses that Luther would have trouble with that. You're uh, Mm -hmm. giving people all this anxiety by, you're getting mm-hmm. religious performance anxiety, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's funny. You say something I think is so beautiful. Uh, you, you say, I fell in love in Israel, deeply, madly in love. It was a love that never ended despite the flaws that I discovered. There are always flaws, which is why it's good to be in love first. Mm. And I think like, you know, I was thinking about that as I read that. And I was thinking about, it's funny, I was thinking about Luther, this whole... Simo, hmm. Simo used this epicador at the same time 
sinner and saint or at the same time loved and human you know that all these mm-hmm. things can exist and i was and th- that's amazing that you're able to process that at a relatively young emerging adulthood age that wow i can love warts and all i can i can and and that, that this is really so I was thinking about it just I was listening to a debate on George H.W. Bush's legacy and on the Slate Political Gabfest, and they were disputing like what's appropriate to, you know, lift up the good parts and also, you know, but also what about the sordid parts and how do you evaluate anyone's legacy? And mm-hmm. and this seems to be something we're unable to do in our culture, love with flaws that you either got to right. to be hagiographic and we're all in or you've got to like demonize. But here you're learning an important lesson that that, that the best love comes with with flaws because then it's real love right yeah i do believe that and i also do feel that this whole kind of um again it's that either or attitude and and that's one of the reasons i guess to go back to luther and to the pope which was you're either all in or you're opposed you're against so what about can why not just coexist why not i mean it took 30 year war before they could sort of coexist but a lot of blood had to be shed first, as opposed to just the sense that two things can coexist that are seemingly at odds with one another and also even seem to um, be, um, I want to say inconsistent again, but um, there's another word Um, that that so, for example, George Bush, you know, yes, he was many things. He was complex like we all are. And to not be able to acknowledge and recognize complexity, I think is um, a real a real problem because otherwise we end up really making one another the other. Yeah. And what, it, what does Emerson say? Foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of the narrow mind. Mm-hmm. But it seems like you're talking about a kind of approach to tensions and inconsistencies that's eyes wide open and seeing that, hey, the truth is probably in some kind of in these tensions as opposed to turning a blind eye to them, right? Which is which right. is where, where it becomes sort of, I guess, kind of intellectually and existentially deleterious. You know, it really is debilitating when you do that as opposed to like you can learn so much when you embrace them, right? I think so. And I think you're denying somebody's humanity, actually. I think that, um, you know, there's no all good, all, all bad. And to to try to paint this world or one another as, you know, black and white, which is really the way I grew up. You were either with us or you were against us. And it was everything was very much black and white. And so I think that when I went to Israel, it was good to see the complexity of Israel. And then obviously um, it was easier to see it then with people as well. So you go from Israel to New York right? and, and you wind up doing you wind up kind of living as a as a young adult in new york mm-hmm. and you're working you know you do a couple different jobs and you mm-hmm. you have different roommates and it, it uh and and you're still going to church and people it's funny because <laughs> because i i find myself thinking the same things you write that your friends are asking what are you like they're asking you right. why you still go to church because you're living right kind of right. a you're living very much a, almost a double life or or, or at least right. a, 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 Correct. Or, or a split life from yourself maybe better said. I was. Like, it was definitely not integrated there there was definitely something where i was still um i would i would say that the image that comes to mind about how i was living then was like 
I was um, on a fence. I had a, I had one leg stuck in, you know, the the modern world, and I had the other leg kind of stuck in the past. And I was a bit paralyzed. I kind of couldn't really come down on one side or the other. It was really hard to make that leap and just to jump down and say, okay, I'm going to live in the secular world. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it, whatever seems to work for me. Um, and so I, I was still trying to be something that I really was not. Yeah, you tell a story when you, you were kind of bored at one job and you went to work mm-hmm. for this as an assistant for an executive. And he, I mean, you had this sort of me too moment. I mean, this guy mm-hmm. makes a pass at you and, and right. you're not aware that he wants to take you out for drinks or whatever, or dinner or whatever, just to, to make a pass at you. And you're kind of, and you, you talk about, and it, it brings up a couple other experiences that you had in Israel where there were some, mm-hmm. th- where people were acted with, men acted with a sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I mean, for, I mean, now I think with the Me Too movement, we're seeing just how prevalent this is, which women knew how prevalent it was, right? But the wider right, culture right. often doesn't, right. doesn't think about it, or by the wider culture, I guess I mean men. I wonder how that is different in a, in a culture where, a religious culture where it, it it's it's hard. I mean, it, it, in 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 mainstream culture, we already uh, don't let women have a, sexualize themselves as what as much as men do, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. men, but, and then on top of that, in in a, in a sort of hyper religious context, it, 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 where that's you know ratcheted up, you know, a bunch of notches. I mean, how how is it? coming to a sexual awareness of your own and your own identity when you have, you know, you're not just a vulnerable woman, but you're also someone who's, you know, like, you know, the, the oh, Eve, the temptress, Jezebel, all right. these religious, you right. know, the, the really sexual women are, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they're, right. they're the problem, right? Right. You know, it's funny because um, the church always made things about sex. I don't know. They really had honest to God, anything that happened, they would bring it up and say that the sexual immorality, they were constantly harping on sexual immorality. And I, I wasn't until later that I realized, well, first of all, they were men and that's must be what they were just thinking about like all the time. Right, 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 right. I mean, and they would bring up, for example, Eve, but she didn't do anything. She wasn't, so she was a temptress. So she offered Adam a piece of fruit. (laughs) She wasn't exactly, you know, tempting him sexually. And in terms of Jezebel, she also wasn't tempting anybody sexually, but they somehow rewrote biblical history so that the women in the Bible who were the bad guys, why were they bad guys? Because they were, you know, they were the sexual, you know, nymphets or whatever. And I think that listening to that every week and, and, uh, both within the you know, religious world as well as hearing about it in the popular culture, I think that, um, it's tough as a woman because whether you want to be sexualized or not, you're going to be, you, you know, even from a young age, people will say, oh, you look so cute. Oh, this. And it's not healthy. Do, do you think, it, I mean, does the does the kind of religious subculture, I mean, does it make the sort of issues that we're seeing, for instance, in the Me Too movement, these power, does it make it like worse or, 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 or does the kind of puritanical stuff at least put up more boundaries i mean i i mean i I, like how did i mean is it is it better worse just different i mean i think that um unfortunately most religions are run by men and that in and of itself is a problem when women aren't at the table and aren't making decisions 
um, in, in terms of the religion, you know, the Pope is a guy and the cardinals and so on. They're all men. And very few religions are there women in leadership roles. So I think that that is the corrupt part right there. Sorry. But, um, you know, you, you, if you don't have full representation, you'll never have anyone hear what's happening with you and um, what your needs are as a, as a person, not just as a woman, but just as a person. So I think that the power structure is actually the male power structure. It's more about that than it is about religion per se. Yeah, it's interesting because the places that ironically seem to be taking this most seriously, they're not government or 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 churches. It's it's corporations, <laughs> and yeah. maybe maybe that's because there's more women there now. Like you know, right. it's very it's an interesting observation. And it's also money, by the right, way. Right, right, they don't right. Don't want to get sued. <laughs> um, so good. So you know, you wind up pregnant. Uh, you right. you 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 are with a Jewish boyfriend who's older than you, and. Right. And he is not super observant, but his father is a is a rabbi, right? Right. And this is interesting because it it you wind up it, you wind up be in, in a religious trend, change, a real conversion through right. through this like processing your pregnancy. And you didn't tell your parents to like five months. You were five months pregnant or something. No, like- I did not. I did not. It's easy though because I was living in New York. And they were in Indiana, and um, there's no social media. They're not seeing you uh, no, gaining weight exactly. on your Instagram. No, exactly. And I was still trying to figure out what I was doing, and I didn't want to say anything until I sort of like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I didn't want anybody fussing over me. I'm not a kind of person who likes somebody to fuss over me and to say, "How are you feeling?" and all that stuff. So part of it was just I just didn't want to deal with anybody asking me, so what are you going to do and where are you going to live and, you know, what's happening? I just didn't want to answer, answer questions until I had the answers. It, you know, it, the, so you you tell the story of this powerful kind of conversion experience. It, and, mm-hmm. and, and it seemed like to me as, a, as I'm reading this and, you you know, the mikvah washing and the re, rename, you're receiving this mm-hmm. name. Ruth, right? Like in this, th- this was the baptism and reception of the spirit you yearned for your whole life. I think in a way it was. I mean, um, but it was, it was good because it was through, you know, kind of a human means, you know, I was, and it was also, I was doing it myself. It was a choice I had made and it was, I was um, asserting my agency. I wasn't waiting anymore for the Holy Spirit. I was, I was asserting myself and saying, I'm choosing this. I'm not waiting to be chosen anymore. And that was one of the more powerful things I think about converting was I was choosing my own religious destiny rather than just kind of sitting around waiting for that Holy Spirit that never showed up. Stanley Harawas, Christian theologian, ethicist Duke, he says that, you know, the great traditions, you have the sense that you didn't quite choose them, but they chose you. But I mean, is so is it though? It's interesting because it do, you you did have agency, and yet it does feel like this thing claimed you. I mean, through Israel, through these all these friends, like it do, it did feel like it had this uh, the stuff of revelation. You know, I mean that that you really. Yeah. Whereas it felt like as I read it, it seems like the 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 Church of God stuff seemed like it never really gave you that sense of claimed and chosenness, even though it tried to. 
but right. it, it seemed like it was always right. thin. It was. I was always trying to, I did definitely feel like I was, you know, the, the square trying to fit into the circle. I was always trying to fit in and make myself make it work. And it just wasn't going to work. And so when I went to Israel and discovered Judaism, it wasn't an effort. I was enjoying it. I was loving it. It was, I could ask questions. I could ask a ton of questions and I would get answers. I would get a bunch of answers. There wasn't just one answer. You could pick and choose your answer. And that definitely appealed far more to my curiosity and to my sense of, of learning. I mean, isn't that how you learn is by asking lots of questions and listening to all of the answers. You now reside in New York City. That's right. And we are an increasingly kind of sorted country. We're sorting out by demographics, so politics, red state, blue state, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, urban, rural. Now, you are someone who I'm sure at cocktail parties, social events, people talk about, everybody talks about Trump and politics, mm-hmm. and you hear people talk about the evangelicals and everything. Like, mm-hmm. no, but you're one of the people, you're probably one of the few people at some of those gatherings that's lived in that world. I mean, do, do people yep. want to know about that? I mean, do, or do you hide that? Do you bring it out? Do you, I mean, how, I mean, do, how does that, how does that part of your identity now, you know, informs those interactions in, in a time where politically we're just, the, the, everything's so supercharged and divided? Right. I, I do talk about it. I don't like bring it up like I'm going to speak for all evangelicals, but people have asked me, like, how do, why do they like Trump? What is it that they like about Trump, given the fact that he's been married three times, he's had affairs and all of those things that you would think that would be anathema to evangelical Christians, and yet they overlook them. And my answer would be because of abortion, because they are so opposed to abortion. And growing up, so was I, by the way. And they really do believe that it uh, it's murder and that God is not going to bless America while we're still having we're still allowing abortion. They're very sincere about it. And they want people on the courts who will overturn it or delegitimize it in some sense. And I, I actually understand that. I understand that they feel, I think they feel, I can't speak for everyone. I think they feel that God chooses, uh, sometimes the, the most unusual and unlikely people to do his will. And in this case, Trump is supposed to be doing, um, that will, which is to ban abortions and to make this more of a Christian country. That's what I really think they want. You are somebody that has been a, a true kind of religious sojourner. I mean, and you, mm-hmm. and really been a seeker and somebody that's had a conversion. I mean, there's a the, that's not the majority of people. I mean, do you, do you do you seek out people that have had kind of conversion or pilgrimage stories? I mean, do you, do you, do you find yourself drawn to those kind of people? Or is it lonely to have that experience <laughs> if you, if you don't have some people to process something like it with you or? I think that, um, I, I do, I do find myself certainly drawn to other, other people who have, who have left whatever kind of extreme kind of faith that they grew up in and found something else. But I will say that for me, I do really feel everybody's religious journey is very personal and I don't need anybody else to validate me. I'm really interested and curious about what other people have done and what they're doing now, but I don't need, um, I don't need validation. I really don't. Angela, I, well, if anybody, uh, you know, needed any kind of 
illumination on their own pilgrimage of any kind. I mean, this would be a great place to start. I mean, you're a great writer, and I appreciate you writing this book, and I appreciate you taking some time talking with me about it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It was nice to meet you, and a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Angela for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, A River Could Be a Tree. You will not regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.